Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Cliff. All right. So when I was in matric, um, a friend and I got selected to represent our schools. It was like a national general knowledge quiz thing. There were different rounds. We won the first round, got through to the second round, where we went up against a number of the biggest schools, let's say, in the greater Durban area. And to our surprise, at the halfway stage, we were actually leading by quite a few points. Okay. Anyway, one of the schools that we were going against was uh, one of the private schools in the greater Durban area. And the quiz master happened to be an old boy from that school. And when at the halfway stage, he, he turned around and he checked the scoreboard, he realized, much to his horror, that his beloved school was being beaten by much less, in his eyes, fashionable high school. Something changed. So what he would do is there'd be categories of questions he'd read through, and he'd select the hardest question in each category, and he'd ask it to us. So like, you know, to his school, he'd say, what do you call the thing on top of a chocolate Sunday? It's a cherry. And then he'd ask us for the Latin name of the hat the Pope wears, kind of thing. So if you think I'm exaggerating, what would happen is that if you couldn't answer, the other schools could get a chance to answer for bonus points. None of the other schools could answer any of the questions that he was asking us. That's how bad it was. I mean, his cheating was so blatant that some of our supporters got up and walked out. That's how bad it was. And so the only good thing was that even in spite of his cheating, a girl's school still beat his school, but um, we, of course, didn't stand a chance with that kind of questioning, so we were taken out. Now, the reason why I tell you the story, friends, is I think to understand why God feels so strongly about favoritism, we've got to remember a time where we were the victims of favoritism and partiality, and we all have. All of you will have a story somewhere in your life. Might be growing up, maybe one of your siblings was uh, the golden, you know, the the blue-eyed boy or blue-eyed girl kind of thing. Or maybe at work, you know, you poured your heart and soul into projects, you tried everything, but the boss had a favorite. And remember how unfair it feels, eh? How, how undeserved, that really stinks, doesn't it? To, have, to, to be the victim of favoritism or to have people who are partial against you. Amen. Now, the thing is that God is not partial. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 to 19 says this, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to the foreigners, for you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Friends, when God's calling on us not to show favoritism, not to be partial, he's saying, be like me, follow my example. That's who God our Father is. Amen. Now, the Christians that James was writing to were really getting this wrong. They were discriminating against the poor among them. And uh, you know, if you think about it, you just read the Bible and you see God's heart for the poor. God loves the poor. You know, Jesus said he came to preach good news to the the poor. Amen. And so um, the thing is that in in verse 5, as you remember when Cliff read that passage, James made it clear that uh, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. And if you've been on outreach trips, like Leon and myself have been, you go to poorer areas, um, you go to, to Christians who, in the eyes of the world, would be considered very poor. And yet, friends, what you find is people who are rich in faith. Their faith is so much richer than the faith of most Christians you find in the so called Western church. I want to say today that we actually need the poor more than we realize. We often think we're doing the poor a favor. It's actually the other way around, okay? So not only were they discriminating against the poor, 
but they were pandering to the rich. Now, when James speaks about the rich, he's not speaking about Christians, not wealthy Christians. These were people outside of faith, okay? And as you heard there, as you read, these were the guys who, who, like James would say to them, wait a minute, aren't these the guys who are persecuting you and exploiting you? They're dragging you off to court. They're making your life a misery. You're chasing after these guys, and you're neglecting the ones who God especially wants you to have an eye out for. So they were really getting it wrong, okay? Now, in James chapter 2, verse 4, he says that when we discriminate like this, we judge with evil thoughts, okay? We judge with evil thoughts. Now, make no mistake, God calls on you and me to be discerning. We've got to be discerning people, and at times we all evaluate other people. I mean, if you're looking to employ someone, you're going to evaluate them. Moms, with your kids, I mean, if someone just says, some stranger, hey, I'll babysit your kids, you'd say, great, that's my four-year-old, my two-year-old. Obviously not. I hope not, okay? You want to evaluate them. You want to make sure, can I trust this person with my children, okay? But the thing with partiality is that the Bible says we judge with evil thoughts. That's, that's the key thing over there. In other words, what we do is where God looks at the heart, we judge often then by external appearances, by outward appearances, okay? And so it's referred to as evil thoughts, which might surprise us because I think for many of us, partiality doesn't seem like such an evil thing. It seems like they're far more worse and bigger evils out there in the world. Isn't that so? Okay. So James reminds his readers that if you break one law, and even if you had to keep all the others, it still makes you a lawbreaker. And so the example that's, that was one example that was used is picture a big pane of glass. All right. And if you sin, if you break a law, it's like a, it's like a crack. Okay, so imagine you were looking for a pane of glass. If you went up and saw this one with a crack in it, what are you going to say? It's flawed. I'm not taking that. Okay, and so that's his point. Even if you keep all the laws and you break just one, you are still a lawbreaker. You are still flawed. And of course, in our lives, friends, it wasn't just one little crack. In my case, there were cracks just everywhere. It's like spot the, the good piece of glass, okay? That's the thing for us, friends. We broke God's laws. And so, James, in, in verse 11, James speaks of being a lawbreaker through committing murder. And some see a link between murder and partiality. Listen to what Michael Eaton writes. He says this, and gossip and discrimination against the poor or against anyone is a form of spiritual murder. How's that? People who are moral often self-righteous, but lack of compassion, lack of sympathy for the poor, the orphan, the foreigner, the widow is spiritual murder. God regards it as a sin against the Mosaic law in its upgraded and transformed form as the law of Christ. Okay? Now, I suspect, this is, my, this is my little suspicion, okay, that for most of us here in the room today, and as you join us online, probably most of us, before I did this, I, I would have been definitely in this, this category as well. We probably don't think that partiality is such a big deal in our lives. We probably think, I'm not really a partial person. I don't really have favorites. You know, I think I'm pretty impartial, pretty neutral. Okay, you don't have to put your hands up. But friends, it's a bigger problem than we realize. You see, it's the way of the world. And those evil thoughts so quickly infiltrate our hearts and our minds. And as I was prepping to, I felt God remind me of something. That very often, you and I actually even feel justified in discriminating or being prejudiced against certain groups of people. And I'm going to give you an illustration on that. So remember the quiz master. Okay? When he wronged my friend and I, what he did was he turned me against that high school. So, like, for example, when I got to, to university and I'd find old boys from that school, like, you know, they say Joe Soper there, 
I just painted Joe's soap with the same brush. You know, I thought, if that was the kind of scumbag that that school produced, i.e. the quiz monster, could have been even stronger back then, I would have said, I have no interest, not even interest in getting to know this person. So straight away, my heart was against them because of the group that I saw them coming from. It took joining my old church as a young adult, building a group of friends, and one of the friends, good friend that I made, was actually an old boy from the school. And God one day confronted me about the prejudice in my own heart against the school and just made me see that, you know, if this school was turning out great guys like my friend, clearly there were a whole lot more there. They weren't all like the quiz master. All right. Okay. And this is the thing, friends. You know, man, maybe in your life you have been wronged by a man or even by men in your life. Or sir, maybe it was a leader or even leaders who wronged you. For so many of us, friends, it can be a person or even people from a certain race or cultural group, okay? And what happens is that we find ourselves thinking or saying things like this. All men are pigs. No leader can ever be trusted. They're all like that. They're all the same. Ever been in that place? Okay. I have, friends. I really have. And this is the thing. Not for a moment are we downplaying or ignoring the wrong that was suffered. Not at all. Okay. But, friends, here's the thing. We can't paint everyone with the same brush. We can't be biased, prejudiced against an entire group of people based on the behavior of one or even a few people in that particular group. Are you with me, friends? This is something which we do it so easily, we slip into this. So the good news is that James, I believe, gives us the antidote for partiality and favoritism. We find it in verse 8. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Okay? Why is it the royal law? Because King Jesus, in particular, emphasized this law. It's the second greatest commandment. Okay, love your neighbor as you do yourself. Do this, James says, and you're doing right. Okay, remember the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 13, verses 33 to 35. So now, I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Friends, the clearest proof to the world out there that we are followers of Jesus is our love for one another, that we love each other as our neighbor, just like we love ourselves, so we love each other. We love one another with the love that Christ himself has poured out on us. The thing is that when I show favoritism, when I'm partial, what it means is I'm withholding the love of God from someone else. I'm not showing them God's mercy in that particular situation. All right, so now... Let's be honest about something else, okay? Again, I suspect that most of us probably think that even before we were saved, we were pretty good people, hey? Come on. Many of us think that. You know, we think like this. Well, I was never a serial killer or a murderer. I was never an embezzler, never stole any money, never an adulterer. I was actually a pretty nice person even before I came to faith in Christ. I can understand why God would want someone like me in his family. Okay? You don't have to put your hand up. But sometimes we do. We think like it. And yet, friends, and yet, Scripture makes clear that all of our righteous acts, even our very best efforts, were like filthy rags in God's sight. Francis Chan, in a video teaching, describes how God knows. He sees every sick, disgusting thought we've ever thought that nobody else knows about. God sees it all. And yet God didn't look at someone like me and go, oh, hideous, disgusting. Not what I'm looking for. Not what I'm looking for. Not, oh, there, that one. That's someone a bit more like us. Yeah, let's choose that one. But yeah, the rest of them, off to hell with you. Okay? What did God do instead, friends? He 
lavished his love upon us, poured out his love through the gift of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. God lavished his mercy upon you and me. We could never earn that mercy. If we could earn it, it wouldn't be mercy, all right? But God poured out his mercy upon us as he freely forgave our sins through Jesus, his son. Amen. It's almost like James could be coming to them and lovingly saying to them and to us, you bunch of schmucks, have you forgotten the love and the mercy that God the Father has lavished upon you? You see, friends, one of the biggest problems, I think, with favoritism and partiality, with being prejudiced and discriminating, is that actually we've lost sight of the gospel. We've actually forgotten what God has done for us. We've forgotten what God has shown us through Jesus Christ, His Son. That's one of the biggest problems with it. It really is. We've forgotten what God has done for us. And there's a stern warning in verse 13. Basically, He says, if you're not going to be merciful, then judgment without mercy will be shown to you. That's what you're going to reap if that's what you've shown. Merciless living. All right. Tom Wright tells of a rule that was practiced in some parts of the early church. And it would go something like this. Let's say that a regular member came to the doors of the church, for example, like a Sunday gathering. There'd be an usher there to to help him, okay? But if a stranger came to the doors of a church, and especially, especially if the stranger was a poor person, then the most senior leader in the room would get up and personally greet that stranger at the door. That's not the way it is in the world, is it, friends? And that's the whole point, is that in here, for example, when we gather It has to be different, friends. We have to love each other as we would, our neighbor as we would ourselves, okay? And then it can't be contained here, friends. As we go out into the world, we need to love others and extend mercy to them, salt and light in the earth out there. It's so contrary to the way of the world, friends, and by God's grace, not showing favoritism or being partial towards others. Okay, now I'm going to pray for us on this because this is like two, that's the thing when you're doing a chapter of James at a time, it's like two messages in one. So Cheryl, would you mind coming up so long and just getting ready? But would you bow your heads with me in prayer as you join us online too? Because perhaps if I ask you at the start of this message, is partiality and favoritism a problem in your life? I'd almost guarantee you probably would have said no. But even as I've been talking today, I think you come to realize, friends, as I did as I was preparing. I mean, Leon shared last Sunday that reading James, it's like a moral punch in the face. I've lost a few teeth preparing for this message, but believe me. God has confronted me with some things in my own heart. And I think today, perhaps there's just something that he's showing you. We realize, friends, how easily these evil thoughts, this partiality and prejudice and discrimination just creep in to our hearts and influence our thinking. Perhaps today you recognize again, even as I shared, just about being wronged by someone or even a group of people from a certain group, whoever that might be. And you know that you've seen it as a justification to be prejudiced against everyone from that group. But today I pray that by God's grace you'd recognize that's just not right. We can't paint everyone from a certain group with the same brush. We can't be biased against everyone. So can I ask you to join me as we pray and just say, Lord, we recognize how desperately we need your help with something like this. We recognize, Lord, how this evil thinking of the world just so easily can infiltrate our hearts and can influence the way we think and see others. And today, Lord, we want to ask you to forgive us for any evil thoughts that we've entertained towards others. Forgive us, Lord, where we have been partial, where you are completely impartial, where we have been biased or prejudiced or shown favoritism even. We want to repent of that today. But we know, Lord, we can't go out there and try and do our best in our own best efforts. We desperately need your help. 
And so, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us today again? We ask that you'd renew our minds, change our thinking. Help us to see others as you do. Help us to see those around us, and even those we've been prejudiced against, as image bearers of God Most High, made in your image, even as we ourselves are. Father, today would you change our thinking. Today would you help us, Lord. Help us to take off, Lord, those, those lenses through which we've been looking at others. Help us to put on the lenses that you carry, Lord, to see others as you would see them, to see their potential, to see their future, to see them as you do, Lord God. We pray this today, and we ask that you would help us now to overcome partiality, favoritism, and prejudice in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to live differently from this day forward. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen and amen. Cheryl. There, Cheryl. Thank you. Would you come forward? Cheryl's going to read the second section for us from verse 14 to 26. Thanks, Cheryl. James 2, 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do what you want. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different path. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. That's great. Thank you. Perfect. Wonderful. All right. So in verse 14, James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And the implied answer is no. All right. Now, Michael Eaton lists five ways that theologians have interpreted verse 14. And well, I was prepping for this. I think I found way number six. <laughs> okay. Point is this, friends. If I, and this is what I want to avoid. I don't want to get bogged down into, in a theological debate around, especially this passage in particular, because I will horribly confuse you in the next 12 or so minutes. And we actually miss the main point which James is making in this passage, which I believe can be summarized in two words, and they are these. Do something. 
That's what he's saying. Do something, all right? So last Sunday, Leon identified this as a key verse in chapter 1. It was James 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't simply be hearers of the word. Be doers of the word. This, this week, in this chapter, James is continuing this doing theme. He's saying, don't just talk a good game. Do something, all right? And so before we go further, let me just say this passage that Cheryl has read has been one of the main ones that have led some people to conclude that James and Paul contradict each other. They don't, okay? But let me just touch on a few quick points around the relationship between faith and good works or good deeds, all right? So it is faith alone which saves us. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Friends, there is only one Savior, one possible Savior we can turn to, and His name is Jesus Christ. He has done everything necessary to save us. And so it's His works. It's not our works. It's the works of Christ that save us. And as we put our faith in Him, we can receive all that He has accomplished on our behalf. Amen. Okay. John Calvin famously wrote this. He says, It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Faith that justifies can never be alone. Warren Wearsby expands on this. He says, True saving faith can never be by itself. It always brings life, and life produces good works. All right? The bottom line is that faith and good works go hand in hand together. All right? They go hand in hand. So if you have true saving faith, which means then that you've received God's Holy Spirit, that the love of God has been poured out in your heart, then just like a tree produces fruit, so that faith is going to produce good works in your life. It has to happen. That's the way that it has to be. That's the point that James is making. And Paul completely agrees with James on this. So have a look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Okay? So what's Paul saying in the first sentence? See, Paul would often attack or have a go at the whole thing of the works of the law. And what he was going after was a lot of the legalistic ritualism around things like circumcision. So what was happening is that some people were going to new Christians and saying, great, so you believe in Jesus, that's nice, but you're a Gentile. Oh, problem, problem. You need to become a Jew first. You first got to become a Jew and be circumcised, and then, if you're a man, and then can you only be right with God. And Paul smashed that legalistic thinking, okay? But if you look at the second sentence, Paul is basically summarizing the whole of James chapter 2. He really is. We need faith. Faith's what counts, but faith will express itself through love, through loving, kind, good deeds. Amen. Now, the whole New Testament is in agreement. It's faith and it's work. Faith alone saves us, but faith, saving faith, will always produce. Just like a tree produces fruit, it's always going to produce good works and good deeds. And so James gives us a number of examples to show why we can't just focus on faith alone, okay? Why faith is always going to translate into obedience uh, and, and it, it, obedience to God and into action, okay? So let me give you the first one, and just to pick up on that illustration James uses. Imagine that you go and visit another place in our country, and you attend a church in that place, and while you're there, there on the floor, you see this family huddled together. They're skin and bone. They're starving, okay? They are wearing rags. The, the kids are shivering on the floors. They huddle against their parents. 
As you look around, it's clear that everybody else in the church is doing pretty well. They're dressed in, in good clothing. They're clearly well fed. Imagine watching the church gather around them and say, Hey, guys, we love you, man. We love you. We are praying for you. We are standing with you in faith that God is going to feed you and God is going to clothe you. Friends, surely something in you would look at that and you'd say, but that's not right. That's, that's not enough. Isn't that so? I can picture James the Just marching into that meeting, watching that and saying to them in love, but saying, would you all just shut up and do something? Okay, Guys, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at them. You can all help them. You have the means to do something for them. Stop just talking. Even your words and even your prayers. How's that going to fill their stomachs? Go and get some clothing, get some food, and do something to help them. That's what James would say. Okay? And you think he might be a bit softer than that. Well, I'll remind you of what he said in verse 17. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James said that. All right? So, now remember, as Leon shared with us last Sunday... Moving on to the next illustration, that James was writing to a group of people who had been born Jews. And uh, for the Jews, there's a daily prayer they recite, and one of the parts of it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which says, Yero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so James says to them, you believe that God is one. The Lord is one. You believe that God exists, in other words. Fantastic, that's great. But the problem is, so do the demons. Demons believe that. And I think this is a great example, by the way, friends, because remember, demons are fallen angels who went from obeying God to disobeying Him, okay? And demons are convinced about the existence of God, absolutely convinced, okay? They believe God exists, but as they continue in their rebellion, their belief helps them squat, okay? They tremble in fear at the thought of God and at the thought of the judgment that awaits them, okay? And even in the world today, you'll have many people saying, I believe in God in like a general sense. That's not enough, friends. James is talking about a different faith, a different faith that translates into another way of living. And James then points to Abraham, who is one of the heroes of Israel, the father of faith, okay? And uh, he refers to the incident where God had called upon Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And I want to read verses 22 and 23 to you again. It says this, You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. Okay, now in these verses, there actually are two big events being referred to. The quote about Abraham believing God and being credited to him as righteous, that actually comes from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And that is where God had promised Abraham this enormous family. Okay? And Abraham was then already a very old man with no kids. But in spite of that, Abraham chose to believe God. And that faith in God was then credited to him as righteousness. The next event happens plus minus 25 years later. Abraham's received the son of promise. And God has now given him this ultimate test of faith, saying, Will you sacrifice your son for me? Now, you'll notice in verse 22, it speaks of his, uh, let me find it, his faith and his actions. Not actions singular, actions plural. And that seems quite appropriate because for 25 years, from that time, his faith was reckoned as righteousness. James, uh, Abraham sorry, had been living out his faith. He wasn't perfect. Just look at Hagar and Ishmael, okay? He messed up. He made mistakes. But for about 25 years, Abraham had been living out this faith in God until it came to this ultimate test where God said, sacrifice your own son for me. And Hebrews tells us that, Abraham's faith was so great, he believed, even if I kill this boy on the altar, God's just going to resurrect him to life again, because this is the son who was promised to me, the son of promise. 
And so, friends, can you see that his life of obedience and the demonstration, if you like, that's not what saved him. It wasn't the good works. When he believed God, his faith was credited to him as righteous. But these good works proved that for 25 years, he already had saving faith. All right? There was evidence in his life. You with me? Okay. And then, while some, perhaps of his, his audience, as those from Jewish background, might have been muttering, well, it's Abram, you know, he's like one of the superheroes. Okay? He then points to the exact opposite kind of example. He points to Rahab, a pagan prostitute. All right? But she too had faith in Yahweh. And it wasn't just like a demonic faith, kind of, oh, I just believe God exists. No, no, no. Friends, her faith also translated into action because she helped to save the lives of those two spies. And through doing that, her life and her family's lives were also saved. All right? As we come in for a landing today, I want to make two quick application points. And the first one is this, is to say that in chapter 2, a group whom James has really had on his heart has been the poor. And I think in a country like ours, with the extent of poverty all around us, often we feel overwhelmed, friends. Our hands go up and we say, okay, so what must I now give to every beggar who asks me? Am I supposed to feed every poor person out there? Well, the answer is, is that what we see in the Bible? Is that what God's asking us to do? No one person can do that all by themselves. So here is a great guiding scripture around us in terms of our response, especially to the poor. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Don't be overwhelmed, friends. Don't close your hands shut, okay? As we have opportunity, be generous according to your means. Be generous according to your means, okay? We can never outgive God. It's that old saying. And just time and again, I've observed with others too how God shows kindness to those who are kind to the poor. All right. And so um, it begins here. This is so important. It begins here in the family of faith. It has to begin, like in a local church, let's say, but it can never be confined to here only. Obviously, we want to show God's goodness and be generous to those around us as well. Amen. I wish I could take a whole lot more time on that. I can't. Here's the second application point. There are so many verses in the New Testament that make it clear that you and I can have an assurance of our salvation. We can be 100% sure that we have right standing with God, and that when we die, we will go to spend eternity with Him. All right? It's called assurance of salvation. So in bringing the book of James into Scripture, because remember, God was in control. It wasn't just some man who decided, or group of men. God controlled what made it into the New Testament, okay? In doing that, God is not trying to undermine or go against that. God now doesn't want us as His children to live with this terror and this fear. What if I'm not right with God? What if I'm not really saved? What if one day I stand before God and He says, oh, sorry for you, out, you're going to hell, okay? Friends, this book doesn't undermine what the rest of the New Testament makes so clear about the fact we can be 100% sure, based on faith, that we are going to spend eternity with God. Okay, it's so important that we catch that. Well, the cry of James, cry of James's heart, is that we would live out our faith. Okay, so James would say to us, you've got faith, wonderful. Now, just like an apple tree produces apples, that faith, true saving faith, needs to produce good fruits, good works in your life. Okay, that's what James is saying to us. So remember, we are not for a minute, I've been saying this more than once, I want to make it clear, good works never save us. You don't have to do a few good works to prove you saved. Just don't get the cart before the horse on this thing. Okay, it's very dangerous. All right? Faith alone saves us. We're also not preaching perfectionism. None of us are going to be perfect on the side of eternity. We still sin. We still make mistakes. But probably the thing that James 
would have a real issue with is this situation. Let's say Bob puts up his hand one day in a meeting like this and prays what we would call the sinner's prayer. Prays it once, and then five years later, Bob's life looks no different, okay? In fact, Bob is sinning even more than ever before. James' friends would say, there's a problem with that, okay? That can't be right. That's not what faith is supposed to do in our lives, what it is supposed to produce, all right? James would even say it's dead faith, and I believe the rest of the New Testament agrees with them on that. So here's the thing. As I was prepping today, I have a sense that for some of us here, this is a place we might find ourselves in. So you are saved, and you know that you're saved. If you look back at a time when you responded to Christ, you saw change in your life. I can look back to a time where I gave my life to Jesus, and there was radical change like that, okay? So you can look back. You know you gave your life to Christ. You know that you're saved. You've got assurance of salvation, okay? But maybe if you look at your life where you're at right now, it's not like there's no good works, but the, the, the kind of the vine, the, the, the branches aren't hanging too heavy with good deeds and good works right now. And I, that can trouble us. And I was actually praying around that as well, even as I was prepping. And, and one, I'm not saying this is the, the only answer, but one big answer, I believe, friends, is that so often for us, our love for God grows cold. And along with that, the good works, the good deeds, the fruit also starts to diminish and fall away. Okay, so if you're in that place today, the cry of James, hear this cry, is it's a call to action. It's a call for us to live out our faith. You have faith, but now live it out by the grace and power of God. It's time, friends, to start doing something. It's time, friends, to start seeing more of these good works, these good deeds, this fruit being produced in our lives. Amen. I want to pray around that with you today, so let's, let's do that right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I want to pray especially for this group today, because I think, I think it's actually quite a big group, if I'm honest. And I've been in this place myself. And where you know that you're saved, you know that you're saved, you know that your life is right with God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not like there's absolutely nothing in your life, but you just know, given your level of maturity, the road you've already walked with God, there probably should be more fruit than what you see. And if that's you today, don't wallow in a place of depression and kind of, yeah, just almost like being mired down by, by guilt and condemnation. That's not God's heart for you. Would you hear the cry of James today, the call to live out your faith by the grace and power of God to do something? So this is, what, this is the picture I have, even in worship. Just had this picture again of the vine and the branches. Jesus said, apart from him, we can do nothing. We need to abide in Jesus Christ. And as we do, just that life-giving sap, that power, as it were, of the Spirit who flows into us. And it is God who produces that fruit in us, even as we respond in obedience to him. It's trust and obey, but the fruit will always be what God is ultimately producing in and through us. And so today, would you join me as we pray and just say, Lord, if we look at where we're at, we know we're saved. We know that we are your children. We know that nothing can change that. We belong to you, Jesus. But we also know, Lord, that if we look at our lives, if we take stock, there probably should be a whole lot more fruit than what we're seeing right now. And today we want that to change, Lord. Father, we ask that today by the power of your Spirit, you would pour out your love into our hearts again, where our hearts have hardened, even towards others, whether they be the poor, whoever else around us, where we've got jaded and callous, Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts again. Would you fill our hearts with your love, and would you pour out your Spirit afresh upon us today? We know, God, we can't do this through our own best efforts. That didn't work before, and it won't work again. We can only do this as we remain abiding in you. And so today, Lord, we pray, come and fill us 
Come and help us, Lord. We ask that you would give us grace and you would lead us and enable us, even as there's this desire deep down in our hearts, Lord, to be able to respond and to live out our faith like never before. We want to see this fruit that should be there as a result of the true saving faith and the relationship that we have with you. So this day forward, Lord, we pray that the branches of our lives are going to be heavy like never before with fruit of good works to your glory, Father. We pray that both in this local church household and especially as we guide into the world around us to be salt and light for you, Jesus, in this dark world. We pray for this, God. We ask for this today. And my prayer, Lord, is for everyone who's praying this, is that we would see a change. We would see more fruit in Jesus' name. We really do pray for this. Thank you, God. We thank you. And then finally, I want to pray for anyone here in this building with us today, or perhaps as you're watching online, and perhaps you've been in a place where you believe in God in a general sense. But my friend, please hear me today and hear what James says. So do the demons, and that's not going to help them. There's a big difference between believing in God in a general sense and putting your total trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. They are not the same thing. And perhaps today you realize you've been trying to make it to heaven through your own best efforts. But perhaps today, like never before, you recognize that's not going to help you. You're not going to make it on that path. And so today I want to invite you to surrender to Jesus Christ. He has already done everything necessary for you to be saved. Would you trust in His works on your behalf? Would you trust in the Savior to save you today and to rescue you? Join me as you pray this prayer to God and mean it with all of your heart and say, Jesus Christ, I believe that you are the Son of God Most High, who lived the perfect life I could never live, and who died in my place to pay the price for all of my sin. Jesus, I call on your name to save me. I confess I've sinned against you, God. I ask you today to forgive me completely in Jesus' name. I repent. I turn away from the life I've been living to follow you, Jesus. Would you open your word, the Bible, to me? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And would you give me grace to follow you, Jesus, all the days of my life? I am yours, Jesus. I pray this now in the mighty name of Jesus. And together we all said, amen and amen, amen. I can't see you now online if you prayed that. So I'm going to ask you as I would everyone here, anyone who prayed that prayer today, whether you're online or whether you're here, please tell at least three mature Christians whom you know who can stand with you and help you. Remember what I said earlier, we don't just pray a prayer and carry on living life as before. No, true faith produces change in us. And you're going to see it. I believe it as God has already begun something new and amazing in you. So wonderful. We celebrate with anyone who prayed that prayer today. This is, we, we can not even come close to matching the party that the Bible describes takes place in heaven when even one person turns in faith to Jesus. Amen. So thank you so much to you. Um, Dwayne reminded me we do have clipboards for new members. Remember on 16 May, we're going to have a new members time. So uh, we invite you, if you're new, you've never done a new members time with us before, please join that one. You can sign up. The clipboards are at the back and uh, the front entrance as well. Good. Thank you so much to you for joining us today. God bless you. Have an amazing week. And as I close now, I'm going to invite the coldness and I'm going to fetch the girls as well. Let's, let's get the girls. And anyone who wants to, please hang around. We're going to pray with them. But have a great week. God bless you. Thank you. Amen.